We'll be in Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 25, if you want to turn there, or scroll there. Growing up, we used to sing a hymn occasionally. It was a version of it, Come Ye Sinners Poor and Wretched. You guys ever sung that one before? Uh, it's good. It's a very good song. But that one of the lines is, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. That Jesus stands ready to save. And the fact that Jesus is standing, it's a great image because it reminds us that he's alive. He's not uh, being propped up on pillows. He's not being held up by a couple of people like, like Moses' arms on the day of battle where he grew weary and he needed help to stand up. Jesus doesn't need help because he is alive. And uh, he only needs to speak the word and the storm will be stilled. Right? He has great power. And as we go through our lives, it's a comfort to know Jesus stands by. Interesting thing about that phrase, standing by, is that it has two opposite meanings. One means to be ready, to be waiting and ready to do something to help. That's the kind of standing by we appreciate. But then there's the standing by, which is to do nothing, to allow something unpleasant to happen without doing anything to stop it. And sometimes we may feel like God is standing by and he has the power to stop something, but he allows it. And we wonder, how can that be? The conflict that we see in the world and sometimes within us, far beyond our ability to mend or to explain, tragedy so severe we can be brought to wonder, if God knew what was happening, why didn't he do something? Right? We can have those doubts. But faith knows that God is good and that he's causing everything to work out for the good of his children, even when we can't see it. So we can take great confidence that he's not helpless as he stands by. He is ready and willing to save all who cry out to him. It's so good that Jesus is full of compassion. He's full of mercy. He's full of grace. He's intimately acquainted with grief and suffering as well. He didn't insulate himself from that. Uh, he didn't send a substitute to die for our sins in Calvary. He became our substitute. He chose to take the punishment that we deserved for our sin so we could know God, so that we could be transformed into his likeness. And that's a, a privilege that he's given us as his children. There's no creature uh, under heaven or in the heavens. No angel that God desires to become like Jesus, but that's for us to be. So praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good, that you are faithful, you stand by ready to save, and that we can look to you, that no matter what the circumstances of our lives bring, you are living and powerful, your word is true, and it is unalterable and unerring. We just rejoice, Lord, to be called your children and to have a hope that nothing in this world can take away, to be grounded in your love, which is everlasting. We are grateful, Lord. So I pray as we draw near to you, Lord, you would draw near to us, as you have said, that you'd fill us with your spirit and give us understanding that we'd be able to identify with Paul as we go through this passage and, and especially the bit when you're standing by ready to help. 
and that we'd take that to heart, Lord. We'd, we'd lay hold of it uh, in faith. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a sure faith, and this is how we overcome the world. It's our faith that you've given. And we just thank you, Lord, for the victory that we have in Jesus, for the hope that we have regardless of circumstances, and that we can worship and fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul seems bulletproof when you think about the guy, but he had difficult times. Believe it or not, he had ups and downs in his ministry. He was a Christian slandered by rumors. When he returned to Jerusalem, he was falsely accused, beaten up, arrested. He hadn't done anything wrong. And uh, imagine returning back to the place where you grew up and having that kind of reception. So he's at the end of his third missionary journey, and he returns to Jerusalem as led by the Holy Spirit and trouble. He goes back to a place very familiar to him. He goes to the temple, and that's where he's beaten up and bloodied and now arrested by the Romans. And it would have been very natural for him to despair because we see in his heart was for the Jews to come to Jesus, for them to see Jesus as their Messiah. But they would not have him. And it just grieved him so that, and he had such good news that he was just, he was willing to die for them to receive, but they just were hardened against the message. They refused to listen to him. They shouted him down. And scripture affirms that at our lowest point, when all hope is dashed, Jesus still stands by us to encourage us, to help us and bring comfort to our souls. And that we can continue with joy and hope unfazed. Uh, the world's troubles are unrelenting, right? But the love of Christ and his grace, it's greater, far greater than that. So last week we did read about how Paul was cornered in the temple, how he was falsely accused of defiling it. This mob gathered, they beat him up, and it was the arrival of the Roman soldiers who were arresting him that, that saved his life from their hands because they were intent on killing him. And as he's being led away from the mob, he boldly asks this, the, uh, the commander, may I have a word with the people? And he proceeds to give them this message. And as he's speaking to them in Hebrew, they're very attentive until he says that he was sent to the Gentiles and that they just started rioting again. And he's like, okay, we need to bring him into the barracks, Acts 22:24. It says at this point, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. So being a Roman, he's not really familiar with the Jewish laws and, and even the language. He didn't know what the problem was, but here's this troublemaker, the one that they're, pick, they're beating up. And so, well, we need to find out what he's done. He's obviously done something. But this discussion was not helping. So we pick up in verse 25. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Paul had been chained in the previous chapter. Now he's being bound with a leather rope to be scourged, and he questions knowing the answer. He knew his rights as a Roman citizen, and he says, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman who's uncondemned? It was illegal to scourge, of course, a Roman, and it was illegal to bind them even 
without ascertaining their guilt first. So his guilt had not been proved. It was wrong that they had bound him. Paul knew his rights. It showed no lack of faith in God to assert them. God has established government to uphold justice. We live in a land of law, right? There is a government. There are laws that are upheld. And um, all positions of power ultimately answer to God. So it's not an indication of a lack in faith in God to utilize legal systems that he's provided to uphold his justice. As children are called to honor their father and mother, so we're to honor those who are in government. Paul had said in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So the prayers that we pray for our government shouldn't be like, get rid of them all. It should be that we would lead a quiet and peaceable life that upholds godliness, that they would be honoring God. And regardless of what we feel about their policies, we are to reverence their their position that God has given them. Just like your parents who, your parents maybe didn't always do the right thing, always didn't say the right thing, but you're supposed to honor them. And in the same way, we're supposed to honor those that God has put in authority, whether they be good or evil. Jesus said we're to render unto Caesar what Caesar's in view of tax, and we're to give God what is God's. And that's really our all, because we've been purchased with the blood of Jesus. Hearing Paul was a Roman citizen, the centurion who was binding him goes, oh, and he goes to the commander and says, be careful with this guy. He's a Roman. Verse 27, then the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. The commander answered, with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Hearing this revelation that this man is a Roman, this beat up prisoner, looking a bit haggard, like, man, don't let anyone be a Roman these days. Uh, Are you a Roman? And he says, yes. This commander, he had really misjudged Paul continually throughout this. He thought he was an Egyptian who caused an insurrection. Then he finds out that he's he speaks Hebrew and Greek, and now he's a Roman citizen. And he's just like, whoa, okay. Um, and then he admitted he, he had paid a large sum of money to become a Roman citizen. Paul said, I was born a citizen, which put him at a higher standing than someone who had paid for it. Having become an Australian dual citizen in my adulthood, legally I have the same rights as other Australians who were born here. However, there are significant differences. One thing is I can never change who I am, that is, where I'm from. No matter how long I'm in Australia, I was never born in Australia, and I was not born to Australian parents. It's some, that's something I can never change. Some people may, will always have an opinion about me because of that. Um, and... As a dual citizen, I can renounce my Australian citizenship. But if you're born in Australia, and this is your only country, and denouncing it would render you stateless, you cannot get rid of your citizenship. 
So I can renounce Australian citizenship, but if you were born here and this is your only country, you can't. You're stuck with it. Hey, I'm happy to be stuck with it personally. Now, I can lose my citizenship is permanent. I can lose my citizenship, however, if it's found out that I obtained visas or my citizenship by fraud, if I commit or finance acts of terrorism, treason or espionage against Australia, or become a foreign fighter, I can be basically stripped of all citizenship rights because I paid for it or I applied for it. I was not born here. Now, there was a prohibition written in the Act in 2007 against intimidating the public with intents to advance a political, religious, or ideological cause. That's an interesting one. Hmm. And the implication is that the government at any point can change the laws to make keeping your Australian citizenship for a dual citizen very difficult. It's possible. So the government enforces these laws and can change them. So I'm happy to be an Australian citizen. But just to illustrate the point that there's a big difference between being uh, born a citizen and coming into a country and becoming a citizen. There's a difference. So when Paul revealed he was a Roman citizen by birth, they're like, guys, put those things away. You know, like, he knows his rights. We're, we're not going there. I hope he doesn't tell on us because we tied him up. You know, we bound him. Uh, pretty handy, that Roman citizenship. Verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. The commander still did not know exactly why Paul had been accused or beaten up by the Jews. And so to determine his punishable offense, he calls a, a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling authority, the council. I, I imagine they weren't too keen to have this meeting, but they came. They had to. Paul had sought an opportunity to speak to the mob after he had been arrested, but now he has this golden opportunity to address the leaders of the people. And I imagine that he was praying about this, and he's thinking about, like, what am I going to say to defend myself? And he addresses the crowd, or he addressed, he addressed the crowd, men and brethren and fathers, but here he begins with men and brethren. So he's addressing the Sanhedrin on their level. He's saying kind of like, I'm one of you, having been a Pharisee. And he says, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. He's not saying like, I had a good conscience until right now. He's saying, I have a clear conscience before God and man right now. I'm not being brought before you as an evildoer, as someone who's going to beg for mercy or forgiveness. I haven't done anything wrong. I, I have a clean conscience before God and man. As far as he knew, biblically, morally, he was blameless. He was without fault as he stood before them. This is a good point. It's good for us to have a good, clean conscience before God and man. Paul kept this tension in good balance. Because it's easy for us to sin in trying to please men 
rather than God, erring on that side. And also, it's possible that in an attempt to do the right thing, we could become harsh and unloving towards other people, and we could be offensive to them. So he was going to have a clear conscience before God that he's living uprightly, he's being led by the Spirit, he's honoring him, but he's also considerate of his brethren, and he's not offensive towards them. He hasn't wronged them in any way. In fact, he showed love towards them in the things that he said. In Acts 24, 16, the next chapter, he says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Something that he worked at. He wanted to have a clear conscience before God, that he was walking uprightly, and also before men, that there was no offense remaining. True lovers of God must also love people, even their enemies. 1 John 4, 20 says, If we hate our brother and we claim to love God, we're a liar. The truth is not in us. As children of God, we're stewards of doctrine, but also of his love and compassion and grace. He always labored to have this conscience clear of offense. So when convicted of sin by God, he repented. And when he realized it was an offense between him and his brother, he sought reconciliation and he forgave those who had offended him. Could you please turn to 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1. Now, the context of this passage, or this book, let's say, the context of 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to correct sin in the church, and people at that time did not have a very high view of him. They actually had a very low view. There were, there were people who were very critical of Paul. Even the way that he spoke, they were critical about. But he wouldn't allow their negative opinions of him to keep him from saying the truth as led by the Lord. So in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, he says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. The people in Corinth, many of them were judgmental and critical of Paul and his motives, but he said, your judgments of me mean little. Even his own personal judgment of himself meant little, because who can know their own heart perfectly? Just because you think you haven't done something wrong, does that mean that you're completely innocent? No, of course not. We can do things wrong and we don't realize that we've done something wrong. Sometimes we can be harder on ourselves than other people are, or even God. We could be more critical of things that God's like, well, that's something you need to accept in your life. Not talking about sin, but we could criticize even our own appearance. And God's not looking at the appearance, he's looking at our hearts. Paul realized that God was his judge, and as a supreme authority, what any human court said about him was a very little thing, because God's authority is far greater. His ability to punish transgressors far above, right? It trumps all human court, all opinions. Paul was not justified by his knowledge of God or himself, but by the grace of God. 
He says, it's God who's justified me. I'm not justified because I feel like my conscience is clear. The Corinthians and the Sanhedrin were similar in that they felt obliged to hand out trophies and call others losers before the race was even finished. And Paul stood before them with this clear conscience. He had scarcely uttered a word, a sentence before he slapped in the mouth. <laughs> it says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. Now this Ananias, some of, son of Nebadeus, he was a Sadducee appointed by Herod in 48 AD to be high priest. For this reason, he had strong Roman loyalties. He was described by Josephus as being hot-tempered, profane, and greedy. I read in the Jewish Encyclopedia that even after being removed from office by Agrippa II, some years later, his wealth was daily increased by gifts and by unscrupulous and violent appropriation on the tithes or provisions destined for the ordinary priests. So he had his little guys who would go in and actually take things by force. And he remained in a position of authority, really stealing from the ministry to become extremely wealthy, very greedy. This being slapped on the mouth was not an indication of a receptive audience. There was not a lot of justice here. If you can't even hear, that, you won't even listen to the things the man has said. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul didn't receive this injustice of being smacked in the mouth without strongly expressing how illegal this was and quite ironic that here he is to be judged by the law and he's being beaten contrary to the law. In Deuteronomy 25, 1 and 2, it says that you're to be beaten only after, the punishment only happens after you've been proven guilty. How could the high priest or any of them uphold the law? How could they be the law givers and those who are on the side of justice when they're breaking the law right off the bat? And Paul says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Walls were made out of stones, clay, common building materials. A whitewash was paint made from chalk and lime. And you would paint this over the wall to give it a, a more clean appearance, right? What he's saying is Ananias had a position of authority. And he was clean on the outside but the inside didn't match. He's in a position to uphold God's justice, but he's unjust. Paul calling him a whitewashed wall is similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27, when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So he's saying, you, you, you're wearing those white robes, you're looking the part, but inside you're filthy, you're full of sin, and you're in no position to judge anybody to uphold the law because you don't uphold it yourself. What Paul said was 
prophetic, even as unreinforced masonry, it falls when it's shaken or uh, struck. Ananias would not die a natural death. He was assassinated by, assassinated by the Sakari, a, Jew, a group of Jewish zealots who employed guerrilla tactics to rid themselves of Roman occupation. So he ended up dying many years later by these zealots. After Paul said that, of course, he's called out for what he said uh, by the way he spoke to the high priest. And Paul's response has provoked a lot of different interpretations about why he said what he said. Some say that he's honestly unaware that he was, re- he was speaking to Ananias because he had been away for a while, uh, as he had just returned back. And Ananias had actually been away for a while um, answering questions about his conduct and had been reinstated. Others say that it's evidence that Paul's vision wasn't so great, that as he stood there, he wasn't really sure um, who said what. Uh, Maybe he only heard the command. He didn't actually, as he's looking around and he's surveying the audience, he hears a voice, wasn't exactly sure where it came from, and then just responded after he smacked in the mouth. Uh, It would be likely that the high priest was not kitted out with the, the turban with the head plate and then the the ephod with a chest plate. He was dressed a lot like everybody else. Uh, now, if I was, I put myself in his shoes, if I was being grilled in Parliament House, I don't know that I would know exactly who I was talking to. Um, like, I don't know who, who they are, really, or their role, because of how Parliament's been changing lately. Uh, if you ask me, who's the treasurer now? I'm like, oh, it used to be Scott Morrison. I don't, I don't even know who it is. Uh, I, I heard someone say his name today. Somebody help me out. Josh Frydenberg. See? If Josh Frydenberg said something to me, I would have no idea it was Mr. Frydenberg. Regardless, Paul admits the office of the high priest is one deserving of respect, being a ruler of the people. Paul's not perfect. It would be natural to react when you've been smacked in the mouth uh, unjustly. And just because Paul did this, he was not blameless in the matter. It, you know, Paul may have done things that, like us that are not uh, godly, maybe in the heat of the moment. So regardless of, of why he said that, uh, he, he was not ignorant of the law. And he said, well, had I known I was addressing the high priest, I would have showed respect because, he quotes Exodus twenty two twenty eight, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. He doesn't apologize. Let's get that straight. However, he says, well, I did not know that I was speaking to the high priest. Verse 6, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. Then there was arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. It's obvious from the onset there was going to be no justice in that place. In this meeting of the Sanhedrin, Paul had done nothing deserving of bonds or imprisonment. Uh, And so he decided to expose the fractured 
allegiances within the group. It seems the only time the Pharisees and Sadducees ever got along was when they united to oppose Jesus Christ or his followers. That's the only time they're really on the same side. Otherwise, they're completely opposed to each other. So he says, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. By saying this, he knew that there would be some who were very sympathetic towards him because of his heritage. He was a Pharisee who was the son of a Pharisee, and that he spoke of the resurrection, which is something the Pharisees believed in, but the Sadducees didn't. Luke tells us these doctrinal differences between the two groups. Now, what Paul said was true. He was an adherent to the law so that he might win Jews for Christ, not so that through his works he could receive salvation, but he wanted people to know of Jesus, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead, so they too could have new life. His, his hope of eternity rested on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His forgiveness of sin came because Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death. Paul might as well have released a dirty squealing pig into the group of this, these kosher folks. I mean, it was like he's, he is addressing gangs and every chief is there and he's just brought up a long, bitter blood feud that has existed between them. Like he does this on purpose. It says in verse 9, there was a large outcry. Now, that doesn't really sum up how loud and how violent this meeting suddenly became in an instant. The room is instantly split over party lines. They started shouting at each other. The meeting's effectively over because the Pharisees are standing up. They're like, hey, you know, if he's heard from an angel, if a spirit's spoken to him, let's not argue against God. Something Gamaliel had said before. This interaction shows us that earthly and family loyalties can cloud righteous judgment. They were willing to let Paul go when they had even been instrumental in him being arrested in the first place, but when they found out his heritage and what he believed, he agreed with them on some things. Like, oh man, we're, we're done here. He's fine. We have no problem with this guy. Like, he's on our team. Let's be careful not to take sides with people. Let's be, instead of trying to win people to our side, let's be the ones who are on God's side. Say, so I'm going to be on God's side. I'm not going to be blinded by the fact that, you know, my allegiance are divided uh, between God and man because of my connection. It is possible for us to be loyal to a fault. That's seen here in the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were incapable of impartial judgment, not because they had different views, but because they were divisive and embittered and unloving towards those outside their circle. That's why they could not come to judgment that day. There was no justice there. Verse 10, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them, and bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. This meeting quickly escalated into a full-on riot, with Paul being at risk of being torn apart. 
the commander, he sends soldiers into the fray to take Paul by force out of there, it suggests that they were exerting a pretty good deal of force on him. It would be pretty intense for the commander to think, man, they're going to rip his arms or his head off. Get him out of there. Like he's, he's really concerned, not that they're getting close to him, but they might rip him in pieces. So the, it's like, probably not like the scene you might be imagining where people are like sitting and they're like, hmm, justice, you know, kind of like Socrates hand motions or something. They were like screaming, shouting, you know, throwing things around, grabbing him and, and he's like, whoa, okay, this is over. Get him out of there. The commander didn't go down there. He made his soldiers go down there. It was obvious this meeting would yield no further clarity as to what Paul had done wrong. He said a sentence. He smacked in the face. All right, this is over. And it it put the commander in a difficult situation, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But since he could not release Paul for his own safety, seeing how the rulers behaved towards him, he would need to be held in the Roman barracks. So he would be kept safe uh, in the barracks. And I'm sure these these circumstances weighed heavily upon Paul. It would have been easy to second-guess himself. Had he done the right thing, he he knew that he had come in obedience to the Spirit to Jerusalem, but had he done right in going into the temple and supporting those four men who were keeping their vow, should he have said something different between before the mob or the Sanhedrin? These these opportunities he had dreamed about for years, they just backfired spectacularly. And and he didn't even feel like he was able to, to really share much about the gospel at all. If you think about both of these times, the first time he just said, you know, Jesus appeared to me and I was sent to the Gentiles. He, he didn't get to say, he didn't get to share the gospel. And then the second time, all he says is, I've had a good conscience before God and man until this day, and he's smacked in the mouth. And then he's just, he's left alone in the barracks with the Romans and thinking like, wow, could I have done things differently? Did I do the right thing? I don't know that he's depressed or disappointed. I can say that I would be if I was in his situation, been beaten up, been slandered, now imprisoned, basically. Your freedom finished and there's no way out, really. If he left, what would happen? They would try to kill him. He'd been effectively silenced by his accusers, and and any hope that they would actually listen to him were dashed. This reality, as he remained in the barracks for days, weighed upon him. But verse 11, this is key. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. A night passed, I don't know how much he slept. The following night, Jesus stands by him. You know, Jesus had been standing by him the whole time. Jesus had been standing by him when he was beaten up by the mob, when he was brought before the Sanhedrin, when he was nearly torn apart. Jesus was there. Jesus was there in the, in the barracks as well, in the darkness. And when Paul was brought to this low point, yes, even he had those low points, Jesus said, be of good cheer, Paul. He knew his name. He had called him. He had ordained him. He knew him. And he says, 
take courage, cheer up. This is something Jesus said many other times in Scripture. In Matthew 9-2, when the paralyzed man was lowered before Jesus, he said in Matthew 9-2, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. When the disciples were scared to death on the sea in Matthew 14 and Mark 6, he said, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. As he's walking towards them on the stormy sea. After revealing to his disciples that he was going to be leaving them, that they were going to be imprisoned and some of them killed for his namesake. It says they were greatly troubled. They were distressed. He said in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The situations when Jesus said, be of good cheer, it's when the people really needed to hear it. Right? The paralyzed man the frightened disciples, the troubled disciples. Paul, in the darkness, in the middle of the night, Jesus stands by him and says, be of good cheer, Paul. And boy, did I need to hear these words this week. And I trust you too have needed this. You need to hear this. Be of good cheer, and the Lord knows your name. He knew what Paul had suffered. He also knew what the future held for Paul. And it's the same for you and me. God knows what we're dealing with. He knows the things that are struggles for us, the circumstances that lead us to doubt and to despair, those low places where we can't see a way out. But he says, be of good cheer to you because he has a bright future. Now, Paul, God had this future for him, and and he, he grabbed it. He's like, I'm going to Rome. And I like how he says, um, that he had testified for him in Jerusalem. Not just testified of him, testified for him. Paul had, he maybe felt like he missed opportunities, but Jesus says, you've spoken for me, and you're going to have another opportunity in Rome. And, you know, a lot of opportunities along the way. And think of how we've been blessed through what he's written in those letters to the churches. The barracks in Jerusalem was not the end for Paul because Jesus stood by him. We often wish to be saved from trouble, but Jesus comes to us and stands by us in trouble. And he stands ready to save, to help, to comfort, to say, take courage, be of good cheer. Paul had enemies who wanted him dead, but he also had peace in the middle of tribulation because Jesus stood by him. Think of the hope that we have in our resurrected Savior. We have a king who's living. He stands by and he speaks to us. Now with eyes of faith, Job, a man who had lost everything, he lost his wealth, he lost his children, he lost his health as well. And his friends came to him and miserable comforters they were when he had only lived righteously. He hadn't, God said, this guy's a standout. Have you seen in all the world, there's no one who's like Job, who, who, he, he, the guy loves me. Like he, he's a righteous man. And with eyes of faith, faith, Job said something before Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. 
before Jesus preached repentance, before he performed a single miracle, before he was crucified and rose from the dead. Let's turn to those words in Job 19, verse 23. God revealed something to Job that we can take to heart. Job 19, 23. Job said, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another how my heart yearns within me. Do you long for the presence of the living God? Do you long to see your Savior? And he said, oh, if just, if this would be written down, if it could just be remembered, if it could be rehearsed again and again forever, I know I am going to see God in my flesh. With this body, I am going to see him. And I'm going to see him stand on the earth one day. And Job was right. With eyes of faith, he could see Jesus coming. He, he, he didn't, I don't know how much of the word he had, but he had enough to know who God was. And God revealed this truth to him. And this is the God. This is the Lord of hosts who stand, stood by Paul. And he said, be of good cheer, Paul. As long as we think we have strength and we have it together, comfort and rest, it's going to elude us. We will not be able to lay hold of it. The hope that we have in Christ will fall flat. But when we come to Jesus in brokenness and wretchedness, all the peace that he gives is ours. That perfect peace that passes understanding. Like the song goes, Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, full of compassion, love, and power. Paul didn't know what the future held, but Jesus stood by him. We don't know what the future holds for us, but Jesus stands by. He knows all things. He says to you, be a good cheer, not because he doesn't want you to feel sad, but because he's near. That's why we can be a good cheer, because he's with us. He'll never leave or forsake us. And that should make us most glad. Jesus, he's with us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you that your word says that when two or three gathered in your name, there he is in the midst. And Lord, thank you that you are here with us even now. You are in our midst and you are also within each one who has been born again. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that, that's marked us, that has put your mark upon us and that you've claimed our souls forever. Thank you that though our flesh may be destroyed, yet with our eyes we will see God. We will see you high and lifted up. We will see you enthroned. And one day you're going to set up your kingdom here. 
and in the everlasting state. Lord, we so look forward to that. We long to be with you. We long for those days. We, we long to be saved from the, the pains and the sorrows and the sufferings of this earth. But at the same time, Lord, we recognize you have plans for each one of us. Even for Paul, that, that Jerusalem wouldn't be the end for him, but he would go on to Rome and you would sustain him. Lord, the troubles along the way, the, the dangers that you preserved him from. Thank you that you've done the same for us. You've protected us. You've provided for us. You have a future and a hope that's for each one that no one can snatch away from us. Thank you, Lord, that we're in your hands and your word is true and we can receive the comfort from your word today. Lord, when we've been shouted down and smacked down and beat up, there you are with us. Thank you that you speak to our hearts. Thank you for the comfort and the hope that we have in Jesus. And Lord, may we not forget, may this these words be of good cheer, be engraved upon our hearts and our minds forever because you are worthy and you are with us in Jesus' name.